the theme for the evening talk is the investigation into the self. Um, those of you who are uh, familiar with uh, retreats will be um, all too familiar with uh, retreat food. And I think Yvonne yesterday evening referred to the peak experiences of retreat occurring at 7.30, 12.30 and 5.30. And on Sunday lunchtime, for the family retreat, we had for lunch a chip, which those who live on the other side of the world call French fries, and Heinz baked beans, and Linda McCartney's sausages. <laughs> and while eating what was probably the best retreat meal I've ever had in 25 years. <laughs> I was reminded of that common one-liner which says, you are what you eat. <laughs> and I was trying to make up my mind whether I was the chips, <laughs> the sausages, or the baked beans. Anyway, so, we move on. In the area of inquiry and looking into the, uh, the self and what we identify with, we can look in a gradual way from the outer to the inner. And I think rather wisely in the uh, Eastern teachings, it's as though we, using the metaphor, clothe our existence and various ways and means which we add layer upon layer to our existence and through that we build up the picture, the sense of self, of who I am. And we get so used to these layers that we have built up that it becomes our identity it's the way we speak of ourselves, we speak of uh, others, and we kind of almost coordinate together and fix the view through repetition of who we are and what kind of person we are. Just recently, one of the Dharma teachers, Jose, Jose Risig from uh, uh, Argentina, living in the US, sent me his... Uh, uh, leaflet, his flyer. And he said there that in uh, a piece from one of his uh, talks, that also, as we know, sometimes it's not just layers or clothes that we wrap around ourselves, so to speak, but also it be, there's also a kind of suit of armour also which we have. And that hardening of heart and mind that can take place, often because of historical factors. So sometimes when we look at our, our, ourselves in that respect, the outer level of ourselves can appear to others, if not ourselves, to be rather 
hard and a kind of suit of armour, so to speak. At other times, we wrap and clothe ourselves in so many different kind of identities. We really don't know who we are. Even though we like to feel at times or convince ourselves that we do. So working from the outer to the inner may be a useful ways and means to go more deeply into ourself, to look honestly to see what the self is made up of, and if at all there is anything behind it, anything whatsoever. In the most outer form that takes place, the most uh, noticeable and characteristic one, of course, is the identity via the role. And you and I, any activity in our life, have and engage in a particular role, and through the role, the self becomes. You say, oh, what do you do? I say, oh, I'm a... I say I'm a teacher, or I'm a uh, parent, or a writer, or whatever it might be. And in the identification with the role, the mind, so to speak, feelings, thoughts, um, attitudes, intentions, and motivations, all of that, as it were, hangs on the role. It easily to it, it clings to it, it becomes the self enmeshed in the label. I am a. And someone stops you and meets you for the first time, meets me for the first uh, time, they uh, may say, Oh, who are you? One gives one's name, first identity, hanging on the name. And then they might ask, as they do when they're sitting next to you on an aeroplane, uh, oh, or whatever, what do you do? One of the great advantages of being a Dharma teacher is that when one says it, it's end of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and there others of you may have more conventional fields of, of work and therefore have to talk. So one says, one person said, oh, I didn't, I said, what's it like being a Dharma teacher? <laughs> So, anyway. <laughs> so, there's... Actually, it's not So, there's the, the self through the name. The self through the role and identity that builds up. And in that, as I say, it, it gets impact and solidified through the inner life connecting and linking up with it. And with that, as someone was pointing out in the small uh, uh, group today. But when that arises and, and takes place, when there's the end of the role, because the role existed, exists through cooperation, any role exists through agreement. So when the role dissolves, uh, outer circumstances change, ends the role, we, we change it, it comes in ways we didn't anticipate, or whatever. If the self, the I, has become dependent on the role, the role collapses, but with it, the self and the I 
can collect with it as well. And a person may say at the end of a roll, God, my, my whole world has collapsed. Or I've just lost this job. Or this relationship has just ended. Or I've made these changes in my, in, in my life. And when there's a collapse, not always, but when there's a collapse that goes with it, it generates the collapse, it's like a collision of thoughts, images, impressions, memories, unconsciousness, we call it suffering. We call it anguish. We call it agitation. We call it fear, insecurity, unknown. Something is built up in time with the self and the I involved in it, with identity, with name, and something has changed voluntarily or involuntarily, it's collapsed, it collapses on top of the consciousness. And in its collapse on it, we call this suffering, you know, unsatisfactory or unrest or agitation or worry or whatever. When it collapses and it's very solid, heavy, and something has collapsed on it, the consciousness gets depressed. It's literally, actually as it were, within us, pushed down by the weight of circumstances. So sometimes, as I say, change comes from outside, change and movement comes from inside, there is a meeting of the two, if the self is identified with the uh, role, then any kind of role, it's like living one's life at the end of a branch, and the wind can come, or whatever, the branch can break, and we just collapse. Why? We think we are the role. We think the self is its, identi its identity with what we do and the name that goes with it. And it's a dreadful confusion for humanity. And we forget that the role, as I say, doesn't have its own existence. It exists through the interaction, the cooperation, the affirmation of others to make it possible. Think of any role. You can't think of a role, actually, which doesn't embrace, include, affect, uh, any, uh, uh, without including or affecting other people in some way or other. Any kind of role. So if we can see role as an activity which is an engagement in life, which is a kind of process of doing something, and less in terms of a fixed thing, then what would be there? way of looking at it. Sort of thinking, this is who I am, and giving it continuity, we just see it arises in the moment through cooperation. When the moment is over, it ceases to function. And the closing talk was uh, the mothers and fathers. I said, I can't, I probably said it more politely, but Basically, what I said, anybody who thinks they are a mother and father 24 hours a day is deluding themselves. It is not true. 
from the standpoint of direct, immediate experience of things, it isn't true. So, activity arises, it may arise, of course, in some cases, lots of children or a single parent or whatever, of course, acknowledging that many, many hours uh, of, the, of the day. And there are plenty of times when, A, in the role, one isn't doing something for another, and, in, and there are plenty of moments and times, too, when we're not doing something on behalf of that person. The, the position, the function, the activity arises in direct relationship to. Or, when you're doing something on behalf of. But nobody does that all the time for everybody. Nobody. Well, the importance of that is, it helps to safeguard us from the idea of my role, whoever, whatever the role is that you and I have in that role, has continuity to it. We can see, we acknowledge it comes, and we acknowledge it dissolves, it rises again maybe, and passes, etc. And, and we need to be extraordinarily clear about it. If we're not, we're in for pain. Some people, I've heard this a few times, one of my, my father, I mentioned, remember mentioning it, saying it to me, pass through life, they see the passage of the years, and come to middle age, come to uh, retirement, and having had a role, a working role, perhaps, or a parenting role, or whatever, and then it's over, it's complete to all intents and purposes. And sometimes people who work extraordinarily hard come to retirement, not ready for it, don't really want it, have been told this is it, it's now uh, uh, pension time or whatever, and the description which comes, I've now been thrown onto the slag, you may not know this word, but I get the meaning, the slag heap of society. Oh, your working days are over. Okay. Finished. Out. Gone. And it can be extraordinarily painful. Not because of any, from the person with the role, lack of kindness or thoughtfulness or care or whatever, but simply the years spent in imagining and believing and thinking that one's life was one's role. It didn't. It didn't. And if we can deeply let ourselves, deeply let that be really clear, one's life is not one's role. Life is something of a different order altogether. And if we get that clear, then you and I can feel and experience a genuine spaciousness and clarity, and therefore a wisdom, around our roles. We can't make much of them. We can't feel self-important with a role when we, when we know how many multiple factors have to work together for it to happen. One can't take any credit and say, well, actually, it's me who's sitting up the front here, or, what, or whatever, when it would only take a couple of people to say, let's have a gig in here instead and start singing and dancing, as some would love to do, and what would happen to the role? Dharma teacher, it would be 
Dharma teacher. <laughs> so, that, those kind of awarenesses, just, I'm still speaking very much in outer, mildly superficial, but certainly at an out, outer level, is just that, that we are very, very clear. Because it's not only in the identification with the role that makes the problem, but as some of you know well, what about the fear, the worry, the anxiety of not having a role? If it goes one way towards having, it equally goes the other way towards not having. And sometimes in the inner fantasy life that uh, goes on, the imagination can run riot. That one keeps going towards a particular role or roles that one would like to have. One fantasizes about what it would be like and how lovely it would be and if only I could get this to happen and if only this would really come into my life and how it would be if I, just, if I could just get this role together whatever. And it can be a fueling of pleasurable feelings and sensations. And in that pleasure of uh, feeding the love to have a particular role, but then it doesn't materialize. And then it's back to our everyday self, back to ordinary heart and mind. And what? Lost. Built up something inside. It didn't happen. And then feeling disappointed. The common problem, the lack of self-worth, not being anybody, not being anybody important or special, never getting what we want, and then all the disappointment that goes with it we wouldn't even be able to see opportunity. We wouldn't even be able to recognize the potential for something. Because the self is lost in its own disappointment, its own feeling of lack of achievement, lack of success, lack of worth. And in that difficult and all too common experience, we can't see opportunities staring us in the face. So we attend, and it's important to roll and see what our relationship to roles by their presence and by their absence uh, in life, and, and then attend a little bit further, a little bit deeper uh, with ourselves as well, and, and the kind of um, movements that go on inside of ourselves. <coughs> in the movements that which occur of the, the, the clothing that we uh, adopt, one of the most obvious and common forms is in terms of this life, physical life. In a way, it's a kind of clothing. In a way, it's a kind of form which appears to us and our bodily life from our head through our, our toes 
is something which we kind of feel to be out on the outer of ourselves, as though we are the tenants inside and we spend our life pleasurably or, or other, otherwise living inside this body and then at some time uh, King Yama, that's in Buddhism, that's uh, the Lord of Death, will come and um, tap us on the shoulder and say, okay, time's up and time to join the nuns in the cemetery behind here. And so the other form of um, uh, this bodily uh, life, I just say, is a kind of clothing. It's a kind of appearance that we have a tremendous amount of association with. And that association uh, with, with that means, since it comes into existence, it also, in the passages of time, passes out of it. You know, with, with, without exception. Without exception. And in that, even though one hears um, of uh, a contemporary uh, interest that is going on in terms of um, length of length of life and a growing interest from the uh, genetic scientist community from um, uh, those who are infatuated with uh, uh, diet, food and exercise etc, uh, etc et and talking about infatuated with rather than wise about will tend to think of themselves as bodily life of wanting naturally enough a, a long life so there are those who are even bold enough to talk of the potential in this clothing called body of uh, uh, immortality. And uh, one of these um, um, Indian uh, professors, some of you know, produced a book called um, Instantly Forgettable Title. Um, uh, forget the title of it. It, no. T- timeless body and something. Does anybody know who's the top rack or whatever his name is? Yeah. But, but, can anybody, anybody know the title of this book? Timeless mind and ageless body, that's it. Or ageless body, timeless mind. And it was an extraordinarily successful book. Made him a millionaire. Was that successful? And when I saw the title, and someone in the United States gave me a copy to have a look, and I read uh, uh, some of it, a thought, maybe unfairly, a thought rose in my mind, who's he kidding? (laughs) Who could believe of an ageless body? Has anybody met anybody who looks remotely ageless? And as for the mind, <laughs> to attribute it as being timeless, when all it thinks about is yesterday, today and tomorrow, and 
I said, well, he's obviously in, on a different planet to some of us. And one of his students, who's uh, a film star from uh, L.A., where else, said that she expected to live, because she's so inspired by what she's read, till she's 130. Well, I've never met anybody who's 130. But when I was in India, years ago, when I was a Buddhist monk wandering around India, I went to the Ganges, and there was an old Indian yogi living in a bamboo hut by the Ganges, who was 128 years old. And people, the sadhaks, the students, the disciples, came and gave him his rice, dal and sabji, vegetables every day, and yogurt, etc. And they went to pay respects and meet with him, and he spoke English. My memory of that visit is rather singular. He was 128 years old. I had no hesitation in believing him. Believe me, he didn't look a day younger. <laughs> uh, and so sometimes, in our view of time and body and, and age, we hear of immortality. I just saw the title of a book just yesterday called Conscious Immortality. And it has an appeal. It has an appeal because life goes quick. It has an appeal because we don't know when the end will come. It has an appeal because birth comes to death and therefore we exist, so to speak, within and through these uh, uh, two poles of existence, so to speak. And so in that, there's this movement that goes on. We call living, being, thinking, feeling, doing, acting, responding, reacting, or, or whatever. But if we wish to go penetrate deeply, if we wish to know, who am I? I don't think there can be any room for self-deception. We need to be rather ruthlessly, clearly, straightforward with ourselves, that in terms of bodily life, in terms of mental activity, it arises and it passes, it is born and it dies, and it comes and it goes, whether it comes and goes once only, or whether one believes in rebirth and it comes and goes many times, to me it's all a red herring. It's all secondary of importance, whether it's once or multiple times. It's a distraction, even being thinking along those lines. More importantly, there's that coming and going, whether it's one birth and death or multiple. Basically, what's the difference? So we look, we look, we look in our meditations, in our experience of this outer sheath, as it's sometimes called in the Indian tradition, this, this appearance, this cloak, this manifestation, this construction, this uh, building which the tenant is in, or however, whatever language we are thinking 
along, along the lines of and what's been said again and again and one needs to be clear about it this is not oneself this is not who I am just to see the body as body and to be so clear about that that there is such it changes the perspective it changes the perspective of it it changes the way the mode and the form of relationship to it but it needs to be understood very very well and very clearly if it's not understood well and clearly it instead of being a seeing and clarifying factor it creates suffering and confusion and I think perhaps one of the best contemporary examples of that was that tragic case just a few months ago when there was this cult with this uh, collective uh, uh, suicide I think 39 of the cult members committed suicide and it was at the time of the uh, comet flying uh, over and apparently the uh, guru, the cult leader or whatever had said to the group that when this comet came by they would leave their bodies and then return to join their spaceship or whatever whatever it was that was flying so the, the, the comet came as you know I think once every however often it comes utter misunderstanding utter misunderstanding in using the language again of oh you are just a temporary tenant in the human body and as a temporary tenant in the human body then when the comet comes you leave this tenancy and you go and re- rejoin your spaceship or whatever the language that he was using utter misunderstanding why? mind actually spaced out spaced out mind mind moving away from the significance of looking deeply into the here and now and substituting the significance of it for a theory for something abstract for an idea for a fixation of doubt and so instead of understanding the body is not me, not myself in order to look deeply, to awaken deeply all intents and purposes from what I see and un- understand it was, it became a destructive act not a liberating one on such rationalization we can go and kill anybody because we say, well, they're just a tenant in the body they just move into another body on such rationalization it's not, not a vehicle to seeing clearly which is insightful and heart opening and awakening it becomes an ideology I am not the body therefore so as I say with awareness and with the witnessing of life that witnessing needs support of receptivity and sensitivity and, and care and attending to 
What of the people in the group today? Very, very common. Said that sometimes she's noticed in her uh, the witnessing that in just the witnessing, might be just of the breath, or of the moment, or whatever, it easily happens there can be a kind of dryness in the witnessing, or a coldness in the witnessing, or a kind of detachment which is taking place. And sometimes the consciousness in witnessing, in watching, in paying attention to life, does very easily and understandably lose some association with the feeling life. So it seems a little dry, or very dry, or hard, or distant. And one says, oh, it's such a dry meditation. It's such a, a cold practice. It's, it's such a, 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 a cool methodology, or what, what, whatever. And it can be. So if, in just the witnessing of the breath, in just walking on the earth step by step, it feels zombie-like. It feels like, oh my God, what have I got myself into here, or, or whatever. Just at the time of that, easy, there's some reaction which is taking place, and we've lost, in the witnessing, some of the important juice and nourishment of the sensitivity in the witnessing. And that sensitivity and, and connection and interest in, is a vital factor for realizing who we are. When we go a little deeper into ourselves, we say, oh, I'm, I'm, not, the, I'm not I'm the name, whatever name we use, that's not who I am, I can't be a label, I can't be a name. No, I realize I'm not the name. I realize that I'm, I'm not the role. I'm not the function, I'm not that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not that. I realize that I'm, I'm not the body. If I was the body, I wouldn't, wouldn't even want to, um, I, can, I can say that, cut my hair, would I? Because if it really was me, what would I want to do? Cutting off part of me. And then, throwing it in the dustbin. H hoping, not much hope with this local council, that it will be recycled. <laughs> because I'll be cutting off part of me, cutting off part of my life. So many things we cut our, cut our, cut our nails or whatever. I mean, every time we go to the toilet, which for some people here will be there major experience of letting go, <laughs> that sometimes in going to the toilet, one doesn't say, oh my God, I'm losing an essential part of myself. So the whole idea that this is all of me and, and, uh, and it all has to be preserved and protected and kept and maintained, etc. It's just mythology. So as you see, name, uh, role, bodily life, and so forth. Multiple situations where question of it being me and losing it just seems silly. Silly to think along those lines. Just doesn't seem true. 
But then we go into our psychology. And then we get in, as we were, well, I can take the role, I can take the name, I can take the letting go of the body as me, but oh no, no, no. Not the psychology. Now that's really where I am. That's really where I feel my, myself to be. That's who I am. My, my mind. So just recently, as an example, I had a, a meeting with a person. And, again, very common, person is in a relationship. And he said he was experiencing from his partner some pressure from her to him to change. One or two of you may have possibly known a of this If you haven't, it, well, there are still miracles. So, sometimes, there's the wish from the partner to change. And the form of this wish was, the partner seemed terribly busy in other roles. Work, running the business, his daughter from previous marriage, kids, etc., friends, socialising, etc. And she said, She's just, um, just one of many. And she wanted more quality time, more contact. And for him to focus a little bit more on her. So, there was some discussion, morning, noon, and night, in fact. <laughs> and the response that was coming up from him was, I am a social person. You want me to be different from who I am. And being rather much more insular, just being with you, making the rest of my life more secondary or whatever, and putting much more care, is not who I am. I am an outgoing person. I am a social person. I do like meeting and talking with uh, people. I do like going out to parties and to events, etc., etc. And I can't be who you want me to be. It's like a mantra, isn't it? <laughs> it's so common, it's hard to find an exception on the earth. So this went on. And there is a solidification of the view. And it built up, not unusual in this man, a resistance. And in the resistance, it builds up from his partner a greater demand. He asked me what my response was. I said, either it changes or it's divorced. That's the signal. That this, this way this is get one is going. And when the mind has a fixed view, which says, this is who I am, why should I change? It will stay, 
in that position, and if it stays in that position, it will generate increasing levels of conflict. Sometimes we think, oh, I am an extroverted person, an outgoing person. I am uh, a reflective kind of person, or a meditative kind of person, or a quiet kind of person, or this and that. And the self builds up its identity with that. If it gets <coughs> fixed in that, it can't change. Because we really think the condition of our psyche is who we are. Foolishness piled upon foolishness. If every time a little mind state arose, this is who I am. Heaven. Mind is producing multiple mind states. One only just has to sit on one's butt in here for 45 minutes. And if we're clearing up the probability, there's a tremendous frequency of mind states arising and passing, arising and passing. By anything, in anybody, in anything. And if all that movement up and down, rising and falling, attraction and aversion, likes and dislikes, approval and disapproval, praise and blame, success and failure, pleasure and pain, all that that's going on, then we say, well, all of that, that's who I am. And then we take out one or two features, as this man did, not unusual, and take that as to be who we are. We have conflict. We have an identity crisis. We have a lack of potential for opening. We have an intolerant position towards ourselves and others. Through assuming I am my mind. All of this, to repeat a little bit what I said earlier, it is not one of coldness, detachment, and removal from life. If it has any of that tone, then obviously there's a disconnection. But teachings are pointing again and again to please stay connected with the breath. Moment every moment. Please stay connected with the bodily life. Every single step, every time your hand moves to pick up a glass, a, a cup, every time you put water on your on, on your face to to wash brush your teeth or whatever, every every time, as the Buddha said, he said, when you turn your head to look left or right, like the elephant turns, stay with that. Every time you piss, every time you urinate, every time you bend, stretch, move, lift, put down or whatever, be with that experience. There's no teaching on earth which emphasizes so passionately the importance of staying connected moment to moment with existence, with which is what breath, which is what bodily and organic life, which is what the movement of the mind and the feelings and thoughts and emotions, etc. 
so connected with it to see it as clearly, as clearly as can be. And watch what the self does with it. Then, discoveries upon discoveries can keep unfolding. Not a teaching of alienation. The word detachment doesn't even appear in the Buddhist text. The word is viraga. Raga means lusting after. Madness of the mind, of infatuation with viraga means the absence of lusting after. The absence of being compelled towards getting. That's not nothing to do with detachment, which is the way it got translated. So we bring awareness, we bring the capacity to witness life with sensitivity and uh, that connectedness. And perhaps then we can discover and resolve fundamental questions of existence. May your being live with awareness. May all beings see into roles and body and mind. May all beings live a free and liberated life. So let's have a couple of uh, silent minutes together, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.